Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. This week, the Dutch company, the Mars One Foundation, announced it has received more than 20,000 applications for its proposed one-way trip to Mars, designed to place four Earthlings on the red planet, with the intention of colonizing it. Today on the program, aerospace engineer Walter Holmans joins us to talk about the challenges of this endeavor, why he thinks they should stay on Earth, and then he reviews the progress of the aerospace technology in 2013. As a child living in Belgium and later Philadelphia, Walter Holmans loved space and engineering and dreamed of becoming an inventor. Now, Walter is living his childhood dream as the chief engineer, owner, and founder of Planetary Systems Corporation, which manufactures his invention called the Light Band Separation System. Light bands are unlatching devices that separate a satellite from a rocket. Walter, thanks for joining the program again. My pleasure. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because in the news recently, the Dutch company, I'm sure you're familiar with, that is planning a trip to Mars to colonize Mars with a group of people. And if you could give us your thoughts on that and the technology and... Do you think it's a good idea? It's an interesting idea. It's it's kind of like uh, going to the most barren part of the world um, and trying to colonize there. Because Mars has, for all intents and purposes, it has almost no, it has no atmosphere. So there's, there's no atmosphere. It's extremely dry. It's much drier than the Sahara. It's got the same gravity as the moon. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of very substantial differences. It's also like a year away each way. And so it's, it's very, very expensive to send people because you have to send so much of the infrastructure. Now there's resources there, like there is water there and there is an atmosphere that you can scavenge necessary gases from, but there's no like automatic, um, refinement, uh, systems there. So if they're going to do it soon, then they've got to first, um, they got to take everything they need with them. If they're going to process like water into other stuff, then they've got to send refineries there. Small stuff. Imagine the size of a refrigerator or a, I don't know, a tractor trailer. But all that stuff's got to get built to work, to travel through space for a year to survive a launch from Earth and then re-entry into Mars. And so nobody's done any of that. And um, so it's it's premature to be going to the Mars anytime soon then all all of that groundwork has to be done because there's basically yeah it's yeah i think they are projecting in 20 years something like that is that what you've heard yeah i mean that sounds that sounds very ambitious yeah i mean that's that's possible but they have to start spending a, a pile of money now and i mean just an enormous amount of cash uh how much for example well um round round numbers i would say if you're gonna if you want to have if you want to have like 10 people on Mars in 20 years, then you need to have vetted, um, say, these refineries in, in 15 years. And uh, you only get to launch there about once a year or so. So that means you have 15 years to vet uh, the refinery. It took, this, it, took, it took like 
20 years to get the space station operational. The space station, I think, was started in 1986, and it wasn't, like, fully built up until the mid, you know, until, like, 2005. So that cost about around $80 billion. And, yes, it was government-run, and, and they're, not, they're known not to be very efficient. But in round numbers, the space station, which supports approximately five people, Albeit not not in uh, not on a on a land surface, they really have to bring everything with them. Um, that was about eighty billion dollars, and that was only three hundred miles away. And Mars, of course, is is um, much much further. It's orders of magnitude further than the, where the space station is. So, um, one hundred billion dollars is probably the the low end. And so if you're going to support 10 people, roughly, then each person is, is going to pony up $10 billion. So that's, uh, that's tricky. It, now, technology is pretty amazing. It's changing. It's getting better faster and faster. So there's some, some things in, in favor of such a development. Um, like robotics can, can get, will get rapidly more and more uh, better and better. And so robotics can be what's 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 very difficult to do now robotically will be easy to do robotically in five years, and computers are much more capable, so they can certainly send autonomous or semi-autonomous robots to do a lot of work um, in preparation for people coming there. My judgment: it's um, very very aggressive to say you're going to have a colony on Mars in 20 years, unless you have you know. You just need so much money. And how do you feel about humans actually colonizing Mars? Complete waste of time. <laughs> we, we already, like, Buckminster Fuller, um, he termed Earth uh, spaceship Earth. We already are on a, on a spaceship. We already are, are on an amazing uh, planet. Why would we go to a place that's, that's, that's less hospitable than the worst place on Earth? You know, yes, it's cool to be there. I mean, you're on Mars, but, you know, go go to the middle of the Sahara and say that you're on Mars or whatever. Just go to the worst place on Earth and, and, and say this is really special. You know, after a couple of weeks, won't the uh, novelty wear off? Um, instead, allocate uh, those resources to looking out at the universe you know, instead of looking at an insignificant, instead of going to a place that's very insignificant, go ahead and look at, say, what Kepler's looking at, which is a catalog of habitable Earth-sized planets um, in the galaxy. And, and uh, let's come up with how many planets are, are potentially capable of supporting life. Let's increase our awareness of this amazing place, the universe, instead of on what would probably be a joyride for either the wealthy or the lucky because um, what would people do on Mars other than, like, take it all in? I mean, the, the robots would go ahead and take care of all of the necessary work ahead of people showing up. So it's, it seems to me like a glorified uh, joyride, a cool one, and, and it certainly gets people thinking about going out to the, uh, to the uh, planets. I mean, I certainly got into this industry because of landing on the moon, uh, even though the landing on the moon had no economic uh, direct economic value. They didn't bring back anything valuable or anything. So I get that it's valuable to get people thinking about exploration and colonization, but it misses an opportunity to instead spend the money understanding how amazing the universe must be. I find a catalog of habitable 
planets in the galaxy far more interesting than a bunch of people hopping around the surface of of Mars. And that's just one small thing. Like, where did you know? Where did how did the universe come about? Where, what's with dark matter? Where, where's the universe going to be in ten billion years? What do why, why not spend a fraction of the money on colonization instead on cataloging absolutely every small moon in the in the solar system? Let's send 10 spacecraft uh, for each moon in the solar system with with that money and let's see let's take a look at, at, at interesting uh, places. Mars is is kind of dull because it's close. That's why we look at it, but um, what's far more interesting is some of the moons around Jupiter and Saturn that we know are liquid below the surface and frozen on the top. And so what's going on with that? There's oceans of, of fluid on the, on the surfaces of these moons around Jupiter and, and Saturn. Like, what's going on there? Like, you know, is, is, there, is there life there? I don't know. I doubt it, but what the heck... What is the exact variability of all of these uh, planets and moons around Jupiter and Saturn? Um, let's look at the asteroids and the comets uh, in much greater detail. Um, let's look at the moon in greater detail. Let's look at Mars in much greater uh, detail and Mercury and, and Venus. And then we could also look at the sun um, and see how it's going to behave or has, how it does, in fact, behave. I mean, it's this, it's this outrageous giant fusion reactor, and it behaves in remarkable ways. And, you know, what, what's, what's it like a thousand miles below the surface of the sun? And, and why might that be important? Is that what POPAX is accomplishing? Is well, yeah, POPAX is a science experiment that actually looks at how the Earth's upper atmosphere responds to fluctuations in the sun's output, those fluctuations being the coronal mass ejections where the, where the solar flares start ejecting an enormous amount of energy um, in the form of, of high-energy uh, particles that hit the uh, upper atmosphere of the Earth at a very high velocity and start to um, cause it to expand, uh, the upper atmosphere to expand very, very fast. So that's not terribly uh, well understood. Uh, the, the bottom line here is we get much more bang for our buck in terms of understanding the universe when we send robots, not people. It's, it seems there, there's a subset of individuals or groups who are motivated to go to Mars because they think that the planet Earth will not be here that much longer, or at least not habitable for humans in the not-so-distant future and do you think that is one of the motivations? Um, I think that I could see that as a motivation. But, of course, Mars is known to be an extremely uh, hazardous place to be. I mean, it's, it's the, the... Take, for example, the need to protect people from radiation. True. Uh, on, on route to Mars. Like, once you're outside of the, the protective magnetic shield from the Earth's iron core, um, radiation abounds. So once you leave the Earth-Moon system, radiation increases dramatically. It's essentially like being in a post-nuclear world, a post-nuclear war world, where if you don't get to Mars fast, you're going to get cancer. Um, and even if you get there fast, you're, you're substantially increasing the probability of uh, radiation-induced disease. And even when you're on the surface of Mars, that, ap that upper atmosphere and the magnetic uh, field I don't think is nearly as protective as ours is. 
So it's it's going from a Garden of Eden, so to speak, to um, a radioactive hellhole. I mean, it's bad. It's cool. It's different, but my God, it's uh, profoundly uh, inhospitable. It's much safer to be in uh, a war zone than it is to travel to Mars for people. The other thing is, as as Buckmeister Fuller, amongst others, pointed out, if if we stopped behaving so badly, we we could dramatically increase our comfort levels for everyone uh, if we just wanted to all we have all we have far more resources than we need to for everybody to thrive we just have to have the will to use them a little bit more uh, compassionately intelligently and what are some of those behaviors then that those bad behaviors that we can work on um i would say that sustainable extraction of proteins from the ocean like fishing let me focus on the Chesapeake Bay here in, in and around Washington, D.C. What people used to do is eat oysters because they were delicious, and they ate all of them. And so they disappeared, and, and they also started dumping a lot of fertilizers into the water, into the Chesapeake, into the rivers that fed the Chesapeake from the farms around here, because it's great. it's great for farming around here, fantastic. But the runoff from excessive fertilization, or from, say, chicken farms, the poop from the chickens, gets into the water and then feeds algae and then the algae consume the oxygen when they die and that makes the water unlivable for the fish so the fish die so we have a dead bay relatively speaking okay so we then we ate all the oysters well the oysters are the filters for the bay so instead what we should do is restrain the dumping of of fertilizers into the Chesapeake Bay and simultaneously encourage uh, dramatic increases in the, the oyster population. Um, and so we could very rapidly have the Chesapeake Bay rebound, and once it's rebounded, then it can be a fantastic source for delicious fish here in Washington, D.C. So we would flood our markets with uh, fresh, um, nutritious, non-toxic fish. The other thing we'd have to do is get the states to the west of, of the Washington area, the west of the United States, the watershed for the Chesapeake, which goes all the way into New York State, to stop burning coal that has a lot of mercury in it because the mercury tends to concentrate uh, in the fish that we find the most delicious. So if we did things like that, then we wouldn't have to buy like shrimp from Thailand uh, or fish from, say, Chile or the coast of Africa. We would just go out in boats here in the Chesapeake. And, and of course, with a much more productive fishery here, there'd be a lot more people making a living just fishing. And then, of course, the the property values along the along the coast of the Chesapeake Bay would skyrocket because the Chesapeake Bay uh, was the Garden of Eden when we showed up. I mean, you, you didn't have to be a particularly talented human be- being to eat well um, in the in the 15th century. You just there, you know, if you wanted oysters, just walk. Go grab them if you want fish, you know, make a net. It was easy. Now it's, it's, it's pretty dead. I mean, there's stuff there. There's a lot of fish there, but not nearly as much as there used to be. We, we've got like one one-hundredth the oysters we used to have, and those are the filters. So bring them back. Stop dumping uh, nitrates from chicken farms and other farms uh, in the uh, watershed, and, and, and the water will suddenly be crystal clear like in this off the coast of Maine. And then, uh, you know, 
everybody's going to want to live on the uh, on the coast because it'll be like in, insanely beautiful, like like Lake Geneva, beautiful. How's that? That would be incredible. <laughs> well, they're kind of you know the Chesapeake Bay Foundation is trying to get people to to understand that. The an, a bigger picture is. Every place where people are near water, this is pretty much happening. And and what I described with the Chesapeake is is we're rebounding, right? It it used to be really bad, and 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 it's been rebounding for quite like a decade, and so and we understand it, and and locally and regionally, it's it's getting better, um, and we also industrialization also decreased. We're we're not making as much uh, heavy equipment as we used to, but think China now. So China has uh, two major rivers, uh, the Yangtze, and I think the other one is the Yellow River. And then they have their industries in close proximity to those, and they have they have far less regulation than we do. And they are dumping an enormous amount of stuff into the water and an enormous amount of stuff into the air to the point where their life expectancies are measurably decreasing, not increasing, because their their environment is so toxic. Like Like, don't eat seafood... Uh, in general, from China, because it's much more susceptible to to being loaded with concentrated toxins like heavy metals and and mercury, things like that. The air is worse. That's China, and that's the price they're paying for their very rapid increase in their gross domestic product. Think then um, the rest of the Pacific Rim, like uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia. If if you want to go to Thailand and go to these beautiful islands, you can, but what you'll find is that um, the all of the beaches in the in the very popular areas like Phuket or or like that that place where that um, the beach was filmed with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, it should be called Trash Beach because that's what it's like. The trash comes in from the uh, rivers where people live, and then it ends up in the oceans, and then of course uh, it ends up on the beaches. So they've Thailand's trashed themselves. Um, with with plastic that that won't decompose. So those kinds of things, like why don't we just instead of instead of uh, you know throwing you know saying well, enough with Earth and, and we're just going to go to Mars, which is like going to uh, uh, a war zone in terms of risk to human to people, just clean up and it's easy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, do things intelligently. Build barriers against runoff. Don't over-fertilize, avoid things that are particularly uh, counterproductive, like um, policies where um, large buyers of, of, of chicken products intentionally and contractually uh, cause their small suppliers to dump the uh, problems of chicken production into the, uh, into the water. If we fix all that, like, everybody wins. And it's easy to do. It doesn't take like a new invention. It's simply better behavior. And there's loads of examples of, of how it can be done. The Chesapeake is an example of a rebound, and, but there's, I'm sure, other places where there's been a, a fantastic rebound. When you say
your technology is high up in the sky and outer space and then and also on earth in the ocean can you talk about why you work in both environments you know a, a space tells us that we're in this very unique environment that it's very difficult to have robots operating in orbit that's what satellites are because it's a hard vacuum and it's it's the high radiation environment and there's way too much sunlight and ultraviolet light and it tends to oxidize the surfaces of, of all the things we put up there but we get a wonderful vantage point of Earth. There's some amazing spacecraft up there. NASA's building a lot of them, but the Europeans and the Japanese and the, and the Chinese and the Indians have also built some really amazing Earth observation spacecraft. And they can see the ocean circulation and they can see uh, the quality of the atmosphere very, very well. So we understand things like the ozone hole, but we also understand deforestation and reforestation where it's happening, and we understand... Uh, water quality, we can see it from Earth. Spacecraft have given us a very good snapshot, um, real time of the quality of the surface of the Earth, whether it's forests or, or the, the oceans. Um, I've done a lot of work in ocean robotics, and that's another thing that's, that's beginning to happen very quickly is, is um, robots that study the oceans below the surface, below where satellites can see. Satellites can't see through water. They can't see through water because water absorbs all of the sunlight, all of the radar. That's why nuclear submarines exist, because you can't see them because they're underwater. If you could, then, then they wouldn't have submarines. So because you can't see underwater, you can't see, like, what is, what's the Gulf Stream look like 200 feet down? So the Gulf Stream is this giant river, 100-mile-wide river going by Miami. It starts in Key West. And it goes by Miami north, and it goes all the way to Europe. And what it's doing is it's taking all of that heat that was made in the Gulf of Mexico and sending it to Europe. And um, what's not understood is how that river um, undulates once it starts to uh, slow down. So it's, it's like imagine water out of a faucet. And, and uh, if, imagine uh, that water being a, a very smooth stream, and at some point the stream becomes just water drops, just stops. It's like a, sometimes you see this in water fountains, where it's a nice steady stream of laminar flow, you know, all the, all the water's operating, uh, moving in parallel. And then suddenly it turns to, to water droplets. It starts to just rattle, just break up almost chaotically. Well, that's what happens to the Gulf Stream. So the, the Gulf Stream, the way when it, by the time it gets to Europe, it's like those chaotic droplets. So it's, it's dumping its heat in an oscillating way, and, and that affects the weather in Europe. And, and uh, that's, of course, one of the reasons weather is variable in general. But if the Gulf Stream permanently changes, then the, Europe might get very warm in the winter, very hot in the winter, or vice versa in the, in the summer. And that's, that's either good or bad for crops and good or bad for people that need, need those crops to eat. So you can imagine a bad year of wheat growing in, in uh, Ukraine as a consequence of changed weather patterns due to where the Gulf Stream changes its undulation um, in the mid of the North Atlantic. So another, another thing to, to think that you could use robotic subsurface marine sensor systems is to study how the water melting in 
Greenland, that fresh water melting in Greenland is, is flowing into the North Atlantic, and it's a different density because salt water is more dense than fresh water. And so now you're dumping like several Mississippis worth of water into the North Atlantic, and it doesn't mix well with, uh, with the salt water at first. And so it can actually substantially change how the heat from the Gulf Stream gets to uh, the North Atlantic. So just understanding stuff like that, you're going to have to have um, subsurface uh, sensors to understand how the oceans is circulating uh, half a mile down. Looking at the surface is fine, but it's a, it's a, it's a river in three dimensions. So it, it get, the Gulf Stream goes way, way down. So to understand that, we need sensors that can actually touch the water, go down and actually measure the salinity and measure the temperature. Um, at different different depths so that oceanographers can come up with really good models to understand how the global ocean circulation may or may not be changing in response to either natural or man-made uh, stimuli. And, you know, if it, the idea here is if, you, if it's going to be a bad year for growing wheat in Ukraine, and then we better start shipping a heck of a lot of wheat to northern Europe to prevent uh, starvation and the, and the concurrent um, political chaos uh, that comes from things like that. How's that? That is awesome. And what's more challenging for you, working aerospace technology or oceanography? Oceanography is much more difficult. Um, and I thought it would be easier because, you know, it's just a, 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 you know, a rubber duck floating in the water. But uh, it turns out... Um, uh, the ocean is, is very, very challenging. It's, it's, uh, salt water is, uh, terrible. It just, and it just eats everything. And then, and then like in space, you have a couple challenges. You got to get there. There's, it's very substantial acceleration, but once you're in space, it's sterile and it's a vacuum and materials inside a spacecraft tend to do okay in that environment. Radiation's bad. It, it'll, it'll wear out electronics and, and oxidize and, do a couple other things to plastics, but 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 when you put something in salt water, I mean, go you know you walk along a beach and and you can see what happens to the coke bottles and the rubber that have, and the and the rope uh, and the other trash that washes up on a beach. It just it gets eaten up by salt water, by temperature changes, and by things that want to colonize it. So if if you're floating out in the middle of of an ocean. Uh, animals are going to attach themselves, like shellfish will attach themselves to to the floating thing, and and they'll uh, they'll just take over completely. Um, so that that tends to change the shape of a robot completely and irreversibly, and make it absolutely useless. I mean, it's it's like why do you take your boat out of the water uh, when you're done a day of of boating? Like because if you don't, the bottom side of that hole is going to look like hell. And even if that wasn't a problem, like, like the engine, that $15,000 outboard engine that, that just makes you fly across the water will get eaten up by, uh, by the water. I mean, they, they actually have a thing called, to, to keep it from getting too bad, they attach, um, people that have boats will attach what's called a sacrificial um, anode to their boat. And it's, it's a piece of metal like the size of a baseball. And it'll it'll sacrifice itself. It'll corrode preferentially, so it'll just get eaten alive by the salt water, trying to corrode the other surfaces. And because it's getting eaten alive, the other surfaces are 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 safe. 
until, of course, it's just eaten away. But once that thing's eaten away, it'll start eating away at stainless steel. I mean, certain kinds of even stainless steels will rust away. Aluminums can get just get annihilated. Um, if you've got if you've got like iron in there, like uh, like your car, it'll just rust in no time. Um, at best, uh, these these half billion dollar boats last thirty five years on the water. I mean, in in the in the North Atlantic, um, where uh, the Europeans are extracting uh, oil from the ocean floor, they've they've started making their oil platforms out of stainless steel instead of carbon steel because um, it's too expensive to keep painting them to protect them from what salt water does to these steels. And then there's things like what a wave does. I mean, uh, a wave a wave on on the on the beach is is like. Every wave washing along the beach is like a tractor trailer's worth of weight coming along at five miles an hour and just slamming into the into the beach. It pulverizes rock to form what we call sand, and, and that's the environment these robots are in. Just profoundly abrasive. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Um, well, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you if, if you um, are willing to summarize the year this past year 2013 in aerospace technology or how would you describe this this past year that's easy okay so what happened is um moore's law happened like suddenly um the the dramatic in, improvements in, in 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 our smartphones have have reached spacecraft in fact nasa's made smartphones and put them in orbit so now we have very inexpensive but very high-performance electronics in very small, lightweight, low-cost spacecraft in orbit, and we're launching 30 at a time. Um, ORS-3 launch put 30 spacecraft into orbit in one day, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So we're, what we're seeing is a two orders of magnitude decrease in the price it takes us to do things in space with remote sensor systems. And so this is for the history books. We are giant changes there. Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, has cut the cost to get into orbit by about 40%. Uh, they, they proved that last, last week on Thanksgiving Day. And, and now it's 40% it's cheaper to put a satellite into orbit. And so you combine both lower launch costs and far more capable spacecraft, and it's perfectly reasonable to say that this is the year when, when engineers demonstrated like a factor of 10 improvement in, in capability. And we know that we can do even better uh, next year. Great. And what have been your recent successes in space? I know you've had some space flights in the recent past? Oh, um, we went to the moon again. We went to, we were, we were, we provided the mechanism that separated the LADEE spacecraft, NASA's LADEE spacecraft from its, its rocket, and it is studying the uh, surface of the moon in, in great detail, and it did something very special. It, it demonstrated laser communication from the moon. So it solved this giant problem. It proved that it, it demonstrated that we've solved this giant problem. You can now send far more data with far less power by using a laser to send the data than a radio. So they're using optical part of the electromagnetic spectrum instead of a, a, a radio part of the 
spectrum to send data. And so that means that we can get way more information back from much farther away. And, and we got to be part of that, a very small part of that. And um, what's next for you? What's your next project or what's your next flight? The next thing we're going to do is we're going to make boxes that you can put these very small spacecraft in. We're going to take all of the brains that are in smartphones and put them into these like encyclopedia-sized spacecraft, like, like a big book. And so they're going to pack in the capability of like 10 smartphones into these spacecraft, and then we're going to send them into orbit in, in the boxes we make to, to dispense the spacecraft. And we hope that we're going to send them to the planets soon, but we're getting ready to do that. People are very seriously talking about sending these CubeSats to, to the surface of the moon, and then to Mars, and then to the, to the Jovian uh, planets, Jupiter and, and, and Saturn. Wonderful. Walter, it's always so insightful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us again. And uh, we wish you so much success and look forward to following all of your future endeavors. Awesome. Well, well thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for the opportunity.